Welcome to Preaching at Trinity. Preaching at Trinity is the podcast of the sermons preached at Trinity Baptist Church of Westfield, Indiana. We hope you enjoy this series of messages preached by Pastor Minton on what it means to be moved with compassion. Here is our senior pastor at Trinity Baptist Church, Dr. Daniel Minton. Chapter 10 is where we'll be. And uh, in case you missed it last week, I did not even get close to finishing my sermon, so I will finish my sermon from last week, this week, which really is just finishing the series, which I had planned for five weeks, and I tried to cram it into four, and so you should never change your plans, just keep, keep what the Lord lays on your heart, and uh, so we'll, we'll walk through today uh, the final parable on Christ's all-consuming compassion, in fact, the most famous parable of all. And uh, before we do that, though, I want to just set the stage of where we've studied the last four weeks in this series on the compassion of Christ. We've already walked through ten passages where Christ was moved with compassion, and he acted upon that. In each of the accounts, Jesus was often, he was traveling or handling some form of, I'll call it ministry business, when he encountered someone in need and his heart yearned to help that person. And so we've seen that Jesus was moved by those who were searching and hungry as we studied the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 where Jesus mourns over the the false beliefs of the people, the, the people who are searching for spiritual food and nourishment, but they're being led by lies and the people clamor to be around Jesus, just to hear Jesus teach because he taught as one who had authority. He taught the truth of the kingdom and no one else was teaching the truth of the kingdom. And they were eager, so eager to hear him preach every word that they stopped pursuing their own physical need for nourishment, for physical food. And because no one else was telling them the truth, They went without food just to hear him teach the truth, and yet he's moved with compassion to the point where he not only meets the spiritual need that they have in giving them spiritual nourishment, that he also meets the physical need and gives them physical nourishment. But, of course, they missed the point. And the reason they missed the point is because they're lost sheep. And so we looked at Jesus how he's moved by compassion by seeing the people who, like sheep, he describes as being scattered and weary. People who are scattered by the so-called religious leaders. And he sees the people who are, the term scattered and weary could be broken and beaten down to the point where they can no longer move forward because they've been abused spiritually so, so badly. They're struggling with no hope, and yet Jesus feels deep pity for them. And that pity leads to compassion, him acting on their behalf, not his own. Then we studied a series of events where Jesus meets people who are downcast and in great need. And first he is moved by a, a, a father who is frightened and hopeless because his son is under the, the control of a demon, and yet that father, in his frightened state, cries out to Jesus, help, 
my unbelief. So he believes, he believes that Jesus is the one who he needs to find help from. And in fact, if you recall this story, Jesus has come down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he sees this man who's been talking to the disciples and the disciples couldn't help him. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders latch on to the fact that the disciples were helpless. And this father's just hoping someone can come to his aid. And that's when Jesus arrives. And Jesus provides this man with faith. This faithless man who is in terrible need. And Jesus is moved by compassion to help, yes, the boy... But it's the attention that he gives to the Father around faith that's significant. And we looked at the widow of Nain who's lost her only son, the only one in life who can provide and care for her and give her, give her comfort and need, and she's lost him, and yet Jesus purposely encounters her in the chaos of a crowd to give her the greatest physical need that she had, which is the raising of her son, but he also is there to meet the spiritual needs that she has. And then we looked at the leper, a filthy leper who is despised by society, and yet Jesus reaches out and physically touches this unclean leper who has been forgotten by society. And then we looked at the story of the two blind men who are in desperate need of help and they cry out to Jesus because they hear he's passing by and they know who he is and the crowd tries to, to shush them and silence them and yet they cry out even more and what do they cry? Have mercy on us, son of David. They recognize that he is the Christ and they plead not just for sight but they plead for mercy, God's favor on their lives and as soon as he heals them they leave their begging obviously they don't need to beg anymore but they don't return to their life they follow Jesus as disciples an incredible story of Jesus encountering one person who's downcast after another and he meets their need but he does it because of spiritual reasons to to build faith in each one of them and then last week we looked at two parables where Christ's compassion is all-consuming. Both parables meant to illustrate to us how Jesus expects you and me to respond with compassion. And so he tells these, uh, these very real, in a sense, stories, very real stories of people who are being, being mercilessly treated or, in the case of the prodigal son, someone who is mercilessly uh, hounded and, and rebuked and reviled their own father, and yet we find the father in this beautiful picture of forgiveness and compassion. And both of the parables illustrate the forgiveness or the coupling of forgiveness with compassion. And we find the father standing at his, the, at his home, looking down the road, hoping, wishing, praying that his son would return, and as soon as he returns, the father restores him completely. And that's how God expects you. If you are a follower of Christ, that's how God expects you to respond. 
to the prodigals of this world. And what a profound story both of those are. And so we've really walked from the, the great need of people for the compassion of Jesus Christ all the way to the point where we cannot help but examine our own lives and ask, how am I responding with the compassion of Christ to those around me? And so with that in mind, we arrive at Luke chapter 10. Again, a long parable. We're going to start actually before the parable begins in verse 25 because we need to understand the context of this parable. And so in the context of this parable, we find Jesus under attack and he's under attack from an expert, a lawyer. A lawyer is not a, a what we think in our terms today. It's the same root meaning, a, a, an expert in the law. That's what a lawyer is. So in our society, they're an expert in, in U.S. law. In the Bible times, a lawyer was an expert in the religious law, the code and, and the laws of Israel, not just the Old Testament law, but also all the extra rabbinical laws that have been added to Scripture. They're an expert, and, and this expert is going to cross-examine or examine Jesus because he finds Jesus deficient in keeping the law. And that just goes to prove the lawyer does not know the law. He does not understand the law of God because Jesus Christ is the law. He wrote the law. And so in that context, we find this man trying to publicly rebuke Jesus and do not miss the point. Jesus responds to the lawyer in incredible compassion. And he does it by telling the story or this parable of the Good Samaritan. So please don't misunderstand because you and I stand in, in much greater comparison to the lawyer, probably, than we do with the Good Samaritan of the story. Or I'll say it's easier for us to, to stand with the lawyer. And, and, and we do that in our practice. And so let's read the parable, starting in verse 25. Or the context, really. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, that's the word, tried him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, You have answered rightly do this and you will live this is a great parable this is a great account of jesus interacting with this man the man gets the ant 100 percent a plus he gets it absolutely right the perfect answer he knows exactly where to go in the bible to give the right answer jesus however adds the little phrase at the end do this and you will live if you do exactly what you said, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all of your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll have eternal life. But we know the truth. Who can do that? 
Who can love the Lord their God perfectly with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, and love their neighbor as much as they love their self all the time? Who can do that? No one. And that's the point of the law. And the lawyer misses the point. The expert in the law does not understand the point, even though he answered it perfectly right, 100% correct, he doesn't get the heart of the matter. He doesn't understand the point. And so he asks a follow-up question, as lawyers are prone to do, right? He thinks he has Jesus. All right, he gave the right answer, and he's, like, he's thinking in his mind, ah he agrees that's right, but he's not applying it correctly. And all the while, he's the one not applying it correctly. And so he said to him, he says to Jesus, but he wanting to justify himself. Oh, wait, wait, let me stop. I'm, I know I didn't go very far. You know what that means? Wanting to justify himself? That means deep in his conscience, he knows he has the right answer, but he's not doing it. Because he's going to add a caveat. He's going to define his neighbor, at least in his own mind, he defines his neighbor according to what Jesus has already preached in Matthew chapter 5. He's going to define his neighbor as someone who is like him, which allows him to love his neighbor and hate his enemy and still be right. That's what the lawyer thinks. I love my neighbor and I hate my enemy. Jesus condemned that in Matthew chapter 5 in the, the Sermon on the Mount. But this lawyer doesn't get the point. All right, so Jesus is going to help him get the point. Jesus is going to tell a story that arrives at a very clear conclusion. In fact, the lawyer won't miss it. So we have the parable, verse 30. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothes, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, here it is, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring in on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed compassion on him, it says mercy. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So again, he gets an A+. Plus. He gets the answer right. The question is, did the lawyer follow it? We don't know. The question is, are we going to follow it? And so let's look at this parable, and we're going to arrive at some very heavy application today. 
And so just understand the setting of this. This is something that Jews would, would have all known but is not as familiar to us. The road from Jericho to Jerusalem is 17 miles long. Usually, when you're making this journey, it's because you want to go around Samaria. Samaria is filled with a bunch of half-Jews. These are the people who returned from captivity, or during the captivity, they intermingled and they married. So they're, by Jewish standard, they're not actually Jewish. They worship at a different mountain. That's uh, an issue that Jesus deals with with, with the woman at the well. Uh, these people are, are half-breeds. They're the, the lower people of society. In fact, if you're truly Jewish, you don't want to associate with them to the point where if you live or travel to Galilee, you go around Samaria, a much more treacherous journey, dangerous even at times, but you do it so that you remain ceremonially clean because you don't want to interact with these unclean people these samaritans and this route as i said goes from from jericho which is was down at the the lowest point on earth it is below sea level at the the river jordan and ascends 17 miles up ascending 4,000 feet over those 17 miles And finally, you arrive at one of the highest points in Israel, Jerusalem, where you can worship at the temple. And so that journey would be made three times a year, often by very religious Jews who desire to go to the temple to worship God. And it's there that we find this priest and a Levite who are returning from the temple and stumble upon this man. And so this is a treacherous road. It's very winding. There's actually two paths that the Jews generally took. One would go through the town of Bethany. That's where Jesus often went. Remember where he meets Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He has a lot of interactions with them there. And then there's a northern route that is uh, a little bit faster but it, and shorter, but it is equally as treacherous and known for bandits. Bandits would hide on these. It's very winding, an easy place for, for thieves to hide and overtake somebody who is, especially if they're traveling alone. And that's the implication here is that there's this Jew who's been traveling alone. In fact, he's coming down. In verse 30, the attack occurs. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And so he's coming down. That, the, the word means to descend which I think by implication he's a Jew and he's also just come from the temple, which he probably doesn't have. He's probably put his temple tax in. He's probably put his, his worship in, uh, the tithe boxes, and so he's got enough money to return home. Probably not enough uh, for what the thieves generally want, but enough for them to brutally beat him, strip him of everything valuable. This would be everything, including his garments, leaving him... In his, in his undergarments at best, on the side of the road, beaten, bruised, and as scripture here says, half dead. He's hanging on to life. A Jew, mistreated by who knows who, these thieves, until three people pass by. The first is the priest. And the priest, honestly, 
in our story, if we, if we were told that three people are going to pass by, we would think that the priest is the one who's going to be the most benevolent, the one who's going to be the, the, the kindest. He brings the greatest chance of hope. Truly, if he is a servant of God, then he will stop and he will help his fellow in need. And yet we know he doesn't. Verse 31 says, Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Very interesting. He also was returning. And we don't know the context. Again, this is, this is a story. Uh, there's no indication that it's true, but it's very plausible. It could be true. And so after a feast, he's returning home. He too is descending. This man, by the way, would know Leviticus 19.18, which the Levite just quoted to Jesus, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. The priest, although maybe not a lawyer, would also be an expert in the law, especially in the application of the law. He would also know Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which says, What does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And yet, what do we find him doing? He passes by on the other side. In fact, the, the Greek word here means to step over to the opposite side. He intentionally avoids the man getting as far away as he can. Why? Well, he doesn't want to be unclean. Right? After all, he's a priest. He has a job to do. He's got to go return to, to probably to some uh, synagogue in, in Galilee to teach the people and train. And he needs to be able to enter that synagogue. He needs to be clean in order to do that. So why? Should he touch this man? Why should he help this man who will make him impure? And so we have here, as A.T. Robertson says, a very vivid and powerful picture of the vice of Jewish ceremonial cleanliness. And it is at the cost of moral principle and duty. If the scribe relates to anyone in this story, he's probably going to relate to the priest. After all, this man is consumed with his need to remain ceremonially clean. And so he's willing to sacrifice his duty, his moral duty, and I'll say his religious duty to follow Leviticus 19 and treat his neighbor, love his neighbor as himself. You see, here's the point. I already mentioned this in, in Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus flings into the face of the, the religious leaders their failure to follow the code, which tells them to love their, their neighbor and yet they add on to it and hate their enemy. And Jesus turns it around and says, love your enemies. And love those who despitefully use you and mistreat you and, and, and think all manner of evil against you. That's how we love our neighbor. Our neighbor is not just the person like us. And that's the point of the parable. Because this, this priest and the, 
the, the lawyer, they feel that they have a correct interpretation of the law when they're allowed to hate their enemy. And so their religious system, their ceremonial cleanliness is at the cost of following the law and treating their neighbor as their self. And so there's a very easy illustration or application to this story. Each of these men, we're going to look at the Levite here in a minute, each of these men who pass by are by implication returning from a spiritual journey to Jerusalem. They have ascended the trail already. They have gone to the temple. They have worshipped God. And what happens when we are prepared for worship? Right? We do this in our own heart. We think, I'm going to church. I, I'm about to, to uh, interact with other people as we worship God. I, therefore, must make sure that my heart is right. And so I must be ceremonially, I must be clean. And we're really careful. We're careful about what we say. We're careful about what we do because God forbid that we do something sinful and then arrive at church, God might not bless us. And so we're on our best behavior as we prepare to worship God. And yet we find these men returning from worship. And in their own heart, they're thinking, I am cer ceremonially clean. I've done everything right. I have worshipped God properly. I've paid my tithes. I did. I am right with God. And they refuse to get their hands dirty. In their own arrogance, they think they're right with God. And so helping this man, their neighbor, it's not even a concern to them. They feel they've already arrived. They're good to go. They're right with God. They stand confident in their own self-righteousness. And so I ask you, it's easy. How easy is it for you to be confident in your own spiritual standing? And what does that look like today for Christians? I'll make the easiest application of all. You prepared, hopefully you prepared your heart to come worship God today. And as soon as we're done with our last hymn, we will break for fellowship and many of us will, will leave, we'll go home or we'll go out to eat. Is your thought of, of providing compassion and mercy and care done? Because you did your duty, you arrived, you worshiped God, you did everything you were supposed to do, you stand right before God, and so you you're, move on. Get, it's time to get the week going. And we might not ever think that in, in those clear of terms, but is that how we practice Christianity? We do our duty on Sunday, and when Monday comes around, it's business as usual. That's where this Levite is. That's where this priest is. That's, as we're going to see in a minute, or, or the scribe is also at. Another important question, then, is how do you surround yourself with people who challenge you spiritually so that you're not self-confident? Right? This, 
this priest is probably interacting a great deal with other priests. And yet they're not holding each other accountable. Religiously, they have their own interpretation of the law, and they're not holding each other accountable as to who their neighbor is. And so what we find, in a minute, we arrive at this Samaritan, the person who is the half-breed, the, the spiritually immoral, the, the, the one who spiritually is getting everything wrong, and yet he's the one who loves his neighbor. And so how do you surround yourself with people who challenge you spiritually so that you're not confident in yourself, but you're confident in God? And we have another very similar account here with the Levite. Like the priest, he is a, a religious leader. Now the difference between the priests and the Levites is this. The Levites are actually in the temple serving or in, the, in the preparing the people. A Levite is of the tribe of Levi also, but their job is just pure instruction. The Levites have cities throughout Israel where they instruct and they teach. They travel to the synagogues. They're in the, the, the common instructors, whereas the priests are kind of the hierarchy, the, the special instructors, those who've been called by God to lead in the worship. And so the Levite is also an expert in the law. He, he represents anyone who has a full knowledge of Scripture and understands the duty of the law. That's his job after all. He travels from synagogue to synagogue or stays at a synagogue and he teaches the people. And yet he too, at all costs, avoids this, this man who is beaten and dying. In fact, earlier in this chapter, in verse 21, Jesus cries out in his spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. And who he's speaking of here are the religious elite. The religious elite have become so blind to who their neighbor really is, so blind to the truth of the kingdom that it's just the babes, the unlearned, who know them. And so both the, the priest and the Levite did not love God because if they did, they would have kept the commandment to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind and to love their neighbor as their self. And so it reveals the great danger of trying to obey the letter of the law while avoiding the true intent or the true purpose of the law. They had opportunity to love their neighbor, and they didn't. And so that's when we arrive at the Samaritan. In verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, and there's no indication he's going to or from Jerusalem, there's no indication that he's in this spiritual state of needing to go to the temple. As he journeyed, he came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And his compassion is listed, so he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. 
So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And so we have the enemy here, the Samaritan. Religiously, he's impure. Ethnically, he is the enemy. They had, as I said, intermarried during the Assyrian captivity. They offered during that time to help the Jews rebuild after the Babylonian captivity, but the the Jews refused in Ezra chapter 4 and Nehemiah chapter 4. And so there's there's a, uh, uh, at this point, almost 600 years of anger and animosity between these two people groups. They also worshipped at Mount Gerizim, not at, at Jerusalem, so he's not going to the temple. In all likelihood, he's traveling for business. They also blended the Old Testament doctrine and mixed it with paganism. They're called dogs by the, by the Jews because they were despised. Dogs are not, in Jewish time, dogs were not mistaken as, as uh, family members. They weren't brought into your home. They weren't treated with the utmost love and compare. They, uh, compassion. They were not mankind's best friend. They were vile, dirty creatures that roamed nature and, and were hated. And so the Jews, when they accuse Jesus of being a demon-possessed Samaritan in John chapter 8, verse 43, 48, it was the worst insult that they could possibly muster up. Not only are they accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan, they're accusing him of being a half-breed dog. They're, they're trying to insult him, which proves that they have no truth to their, to their claim. They're just trying to insult him, and, and dis, they despise him. And with that in mind, as Jesus talks to this lawyer who may have been present at that time, or certainly part of that, that mindset, Jesus explains what compassion looks like. James also tells us in James 1 verse 27 that pure religion has nothing to do with birthrights or race or ritual or a confession of faith. It has everything to do with what occurs in our heart. In fact, in James 1.27, he's talking about the compassion that we have to widows and children, the practice of our faith being lived out. And so the Samaritan here took the injured man and he took his burdens upon him. He bathed him in wine and oil. Wine here being an antiseptic, oil being an ointment. He poured out lavish love on the man. He put the man on his own mule and he walked. He spent the whole night caring for this man. He then took two denarii, two days wage, and left that to cover the cost of this man's recovery, which I think by implication means he's returning in a few days and he'll care for him from that point on. Two, By the way, two full days wage would have equate to about two months stay and so we have this incredible lesson on compassion the compassion of Christ is meant to be extended to all the Samaritan never stopped to ask who is my neighbor he just acted upon what was what was impressed upon his heart 
He risked everything to help this man who likely hated him. He risked danger of his own life as bandits have already attacked this man, which means they're in the area, and yet he pauses to minister to him. He risks everything. He risks breaking religious codes. And so the compassion of Christ is extended, and it's also given freely. Compassion here opens opportunities to demonstrate that he loves the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his mind. And so he risks it, gives him. He, he doesn't write down on a piece of paper, you owe me for the oil and the wine and the two denarii and I expect you to pay me back for all of this. He gives it freely to him. And so the story's over. The illustration has been made. It is profoundly clear. And Jesus asks the question, who is the one who is his neighbor? And he said, verse 37, he who showed mercy on him. And so Jesus gets the application. Go and do likewise. A command. Live out your faith with compassion. And so Jesus gives this incredible story just to break the heart of the lawyer. The one who should have known. The one who did know the right answer, but he didn't know how to apply it. Can I ask you, when's the last time you provided help to a stranger like this? When you've been presented with an opportunity to meet someone's need at personal cost to yourself, and I don't just mean financially, but also your time, your energy. When have you even been able to do that to someone who's been labeled your enemy? You know, in each of these stories, there's an undeniable yearning of the heart to respond counter to the culture and the nature of man. Our nature screams inside of us to protect ourselves, to sacrifice nothing, to claim your own benefits. And yet the heart of Christ runs counter to this nature. The compassionate heart of Christ is ready to suffer loss. The compassionate heart of Christ brings total restoration, demanding no recompense. The compassionate heart of Christ brings complete forgiveness to others without reserve. The compassionate heart of Christ seizes opportunities to demonstrate the love that we have received, especially when it costs us our own worth. And so I ask you, in conclusion, I want to ask you four questions. And it's really about the whole scope of this entire five weeks of study on the compassion of Christ. How has the study of Jesus changed your heart to be more compassionate? I'm glad I didn't finish last week because I had an opportunity that now to review all five weeks you know, at the end of every sermon, I try to ask questions that, that invoke in us a response to the truth of Scripture. But let's broaden that to five weeks. One week is a hard time to recognize change. What about five weeks? Five weeks 
for God to change our hearts so that we demonstrate or replicate the compassion of Christ. Let me ask you, what about the compassion of Christ has been most startling or eye-opening to you? In these five weeks, what has just gripped your heart to the point where you have not been able to let it go? Or a broader question, how does our church need to change in order to match the compassion that Christ displays in these 13 passages? Recently, have you had an opportunity to demonstrate the love and compassion of Christ? And if your answer is no, I really haven't had any opportunities, then I ask you, who's your neighbor? Are you even looking? Let's pray. We hope that today's message has challenged you spiritually and has been an encouragement to you in your walk with the Lord. For more information about Trinity Baptist Church, or if you have questions about your relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us on our website at tbcwestfield.com or on Facebook or Instagram at tbcwestfield. Thank you so much for listening today. Join us again next time for more Preaching at Trinity.